So just a, a quick uh, thing or two to say before I pray, before we read uh, the text. Uh, uh, coronavirus. Um, one of the things I found really interesting this week was a headline uh, that greeted me one day on uh, the local news channel was that uh, someone uh, had tested negative for the coronavirus at uh, Henrico Doctors Hospital. And it just struck me as pretty funny that that was news. Um, let, let me say a couple of things about this. If, if we got into a situation that was really, really bad, uh, we, could we could, and we've talked about this, we could stream the worship service. Uh, I announced that at the 9 o'clock service when we were having technological glitches and we're not able to uh, get that screen to project, but we fixed it, you know, or somebody fixed it, and it's working now, so uh, we, we would be able to do that. But I want to talk about something bigger than that, uh, more important than that, and we just sang it. I don't... You know, sometimes we sing these songs, and they're very lovely, especially when you have gifted people leading you. Um, but one of the things that happens to us is we, when, when we sang this song, we sang that we shall not want. But the thing that we ask God to do um, is uh, to deliver us from the love of our own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from the need to be understood, from a need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely, from the fear of serving others, and from the fear of death or trial. We didn't sing to be delivered from death or trial. And so um, as we face an uncertain uh, thing about this epidemic, pandemic, whatever-demic it is, um, a couple of things strike me today. Um, the New Testament, in general, is in opposition to the Centers for Disease Control. <laughs> uh, Jesus touched lepers. And I know immediately when I say that, you go, but he was Jesus. And it was the first century, and they didn't understand the germ theory of sickness. I think Jesus kind of made germs. I, I think he understands how that works. But beyond that, Jesus commands, tells uh, his elders in James chapter 5, that if anyone among us is sick, that the elders are to go pray for them by laying hands on them and anointing them with oil, by actually touching the sick person. Now, um, why do I tell you this? Well, I, I think to do that, you have to be delivered from the fear of death. I also think um, that uh, this illness is an opportunity for God to get a lot of glory and for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to have some legs in the world. 
Now, please, before I pray this morning, please understand that what I'm saying to you is not that there's a law of you got to go out and find sick people and touch them. But what I am saying to you is that uh, in times like this, we have an opportunity, God gives us an opportunity to bear witness to the fact that Jesus has conquered death. I read uh, this week, or maybe last week, a an article about um, uh, a mass grave that was uncovered near a medieval abbey in England. Fifty people buried in this uh, mass grave, men and women, boys and girls, even babies. Uh, they date them from the time of the plague uh, in uh, when that was running rampant during uh, the Middle Ages in, in England. And it was amazing that these bodies were laid out orderly, dressed, and cared for. That, uh, and that there were so many of them, probably half of the surrounding population around that abbey was in that one grave. And that they came to the church and that the church loved those people at the end of their lives. So, I don't know what this means for you. I don't know what it means for me. But I do know uh, that historically, uh, God uses his people to love and serve. One of the things that we don't think about about sin and death very often is that they are separators, that they separate us, right? Disease separates us, does it not? The gospel brings us together. And so I, I, I want to say in the midst of this that, you know, we, we might be in a situation where it would be best for us not to gather together, but I can't imagine a situation where we would say it's best that we not care for the sick. So, again, there's no law that says you have to do this. Um, your salvation doesn't depend on you caring for someone who might be sick. But I do think it is an opportunity to bear witness uh, to the fact that we just asked our God in this great song that we sang to deliver us from the fear of death or trial. And what might that look like? Right? Um, so before I read the uh, text... Uh, this morning from uh, Ezra chapter 6. Let me, um, and by the way, uh, I did see a great thing this week on, um, it's a a satirical uh, website that did a story on uh, the coronavirus that said that when the um, coronavirus passes over your house, that it'll pass by your house if you've put Chick-fil-A sauce on the doorposts of your house. (laughs) Now, if that offends you, 
Uh, it was supposed to. That's satire. <laughs> uh, I just, you know, because, you know, I know some of you would actually lick the doorposts of your house with, <laughs> to get you the last bit of the Chick-fil-A sauce. But, um, yeah, I, you know, you probably wonder what I spend my time reading during the week, right? So, um, but, yeah, I thought thought that was pretty good. Anyway, um, let's let's pray. Obviously, we need to pray. Uh, Lord, we come to you. We've just uh, prayed uh, and sang uh, to be delivered uh, from uh, our desire and need of comfort and our uh, to be delivered from the fear of all that sin brings and the separation that it brings into our world. And um, Lord, we are a fearful and weak people, but you love us and uh, you sent Jesus to us uh, to um, uh, overcome and atone uh, for our fear. So I pray that you would help us today. Um, Lord, as we as we read this text today about the joy that you gave your people in the midst of uh, a difficult uh, historical situation, I pray that uh, you would help us with that uh, today as well. So be with us, help us, open us up uh, to uh, the truth of uh, your word this morning. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so Ezra chapter 6, verses 16 through 22. Uh, text is uh, up on the screens behind me, printed also in the bulletin. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them and the work of the house of God, uh, the God of Israel. So, um, Liz, would you go ahead and put my notes up this morning? So the the beginning, of the, one of the things to note about this text that jumps off the page is that it's, it's bracketed by joy, that at the very beginning uh, of the story, what we read is, is that they, the people of God celebrated the dedication uh, of the temple with joy. And then at the end, as they're eating the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that the Lord made them joyful uh, and had turned the heart of the, uh, the king of Assyria to them, right? So here's, here's one of the things that is 
profound about that is that what Ezra wants us to see here is, is that the, the, the people of God experienced a lot of joy at the completion of the temple. Now, when, when we read this, one of the things that, you know, when, as, when we uh, as people today read this, we, we might, uh, well, joy might be a little difficult for us to come by today, right? I mean, one of the, as we think about the, the situation in our world, the situation in our hearts, the situation in many of our families, it may seem like joy is a difficult thing to come by. But the, the consistent witness of the Bible is that joy is to be a marker of the people of God. Now, when I say that, you know, our reaction to that is, well, of course, you know, biblical joy is not shallow like happiness and, and it is not dependent on circumstances and that the, the work of God, uh, does not depend on, uh, and, and the joy that comes from that, the cross, the gospel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit doesn't depend on our circumstances. But the, the fact of the matter is there's a circumstance here in this text of the completion of the temple, of the recognition of the blessing of God, and so the people are experiencing a lot of joy. And so when we read this, we could think, well, that's good. They celebrated that. And that was, you know, they finally get the temple done. We've been reading. It's taken them like almost 21 years to get it done. But here it is. They finally got it done. And so they celebrated it. Uh, but one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that uh, if you know much about what's going on here, you get a sense of that their joy is actually being celebrated in the face of some pretty bleak realities. Right now, you might have read this text and you might have thought, wow, they they killed 100 bulls, 200 rams and 400 lambs. Those were fellowship offerings. And those those weren't the kind of offerings that were just burnt up on the altar. They were the kind that were cooked and then they ate. So a lot, it's a big cookout, a lot of barbecue, a lot, a lot of meat. A lot of, no vegans in this crowd. They are uh, they are wolfing down. Uh, a, a, a lot of meat there. And that seems like a lot. But if you go back and read about the dedication of the original temple, what we read is, is that Solomon saw to it that 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep were killed at the dedication of the first temple. They were rich. They were at the apex of their power. It was a, this, this celebration with the hundred bulls and the 200 rams and the 400 lambs was nothing, was, was fra- just a tiny fraction of the celebration of the first temple. Now, what we've, you know, we've read in the, in the text, right, that uh, back when they first laid the foundation of the temple, that there were some old people there who remembered what the original temple looked like. And in the celebration of the laying of the, of the cornerstone, the old people cried. Right? And so, so this joy here that the people are experiencing is, is a real joy, uh, that the, the, the temple's completed. But it is nothing like what had been there before. Nothing. Right? Next slide, please, Liz. Not only is it a tiny offering compared to what had been offered before, but there's no Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's lost. 
And therefore, the things that were in the Ark of the Covenant, the the uh, the tablets with the Ten Commandments, the pot of manna, and the the budding rod of Aaron, all of that stuff's gone. So it's been lost, lost forever, right? And then we also note that in this this uh, text here, where this uh, uh, dedication is happening, there's no king. Solomon was there. Uh, one of the great kings ever in the history of the world was there at the dedication of the first temple. No mention of any dignitaries, no mention of any kings, no mention of anything like that, right? So it's things have changed, right? Things things have dramatically changed over the history of the people of God. And uh, remember, you know, there were thousands, there were 12 tribes now they're down basically to one tribe that's barely hanging on and part of another. Uh, and as they're there, uh, it's only 42,000 of them had returned. I mean, it is, it's, it's much smaller. Still, still, in the midst of this, they offer 12 uh, goats, right, as a sacrifice, as an offering of sin, for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, even though the, those tribes are, are largely uh, gone. They're recognizing that their own sin and their own community, that they are, that they are united in this and that they are, uh, you know, that they're recognizing and that they need atonement for all of the covenant people of God. And even in the midst of this, they ate and they celebrated, Right. These bulls and rams were eaten. They, they kept the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that went on for about a week after the Passover. And so what I want you to take away from this is, is something that is essential for your life. And that's this, that the joy that we experience by being the people of God, this side of glory will always be tinged with some part of sin, some part of brokenness, some part of fear, some part of anxiety, some part of nostalgia. Yesterday we celebrated, we had a birthday party for my grandson. He was one year old. Uh, actually, because it's been a leap year, he was 366 days old. Uh, but it was his birthday and it was a great it was a great thing. And I just was looking at him. We locked eyes. We're looking at each other across the room. And it was just great to watch him crawling around and stealing toys from other kids. And uh, uh, and one of the things that it must be great to be a baby in a room full of adults that are having a party because uh, they're all the, the adults are all talking to each other and they're not paying any attention to the baby so that he gets to do, you know. So I watch him kind of crawl under a table, and they have a doorstop in their uh, apartment. And I remember this as a kid, too, the kind that's, that's a spring, you know. And so he is down there just, mm, mm, just hitting that thing, watching it go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So I kind of look a little bit, and I'm not paying attention. I look a little bit, and he's whamming on that thing. And then I don't hear him hitting on it anymore. And I look down to see, what is he doing? Well, he's pulled the cap off of the thing, and he's got it in his mouth, Right. So uh, he's going to choke, and, and somebody needs to pay some attention to that. So I reach down and get it from him and put it on the table, and he goes on whamming the thing, and then he goes and pulls a bunch of pots off a shelf. So the, um, And I was thinking about that. I'm like, what a blessing. You know, it really is a blessing, 
I remember reading years ago uh, when Jacob was an old man and he had his grandchildren sitting on his lap. But I thought, wow, I wish my parents were here to see this. You know, my dad would be in his glory right now seeing his great-grandson. Now, did I just throw a big wet blanket on the joy of that occasion? No. That's a picture of what joy looks like for someone alive in this world today. Because it's not heaven. And joy is not unadulterated, right? It's real. I'm glad. It's wonderful. But at the same time, is it complete? No. And it won't be complete until we get to heaven, right? And so, so as you, as you, as you look at this text here and as you see what's happening here, that's a real picture of, of, of how joy works itself out in the lives of these people. They, here they are, uh, they are experiencing the joy of the provision of God. But they have to come to grips with and they have to recognize that they are greatly diminished. Listen, sin diminishes. They are diminished by by generations of disobedience, generations of rebellion, generations of people forgetting the goodness and the love of God to them. And as a result of that, they're diminished. Much of their wealth is dissipated. There is no king. They have no king. They are essentially an oppressed people or a people under the thumb of a foreign ruler, hundreds, maybe more than a thousand miles away. And yet, and yet, they're the people of God. They're the remnant. They're what's left. I mean, honestly, if sin got the last word, there would be no temple. There would be no Passover. There would be no feast of unleavened bread. There'd be nothing. But God sees to it that though this is diminished and though this is small and though this is tempered by the reality of of their sin he gets the last word every single person in this room every single person in this room has been diminished by their sin and has been diminished by the sin of others Every single one of us. And yet, the work of God continues because that sin, that death, that dissipation does not get the last word. Are we all that we could be? (laughs) Are we reaching our full potential? That's the thing that plagues me the most because I, I hate opportunity cost. I, I hate to see p- potential 
uh, uh, wasted. I remember sitting down with my kids uh, uh, at one point at a spring break not too many years ago talking and, you know, everybody's hunky-dory and fun and all this stuff. And I, and I remember saying to them, boys, I want to introduce you to a new word that we're going to be talking about a lot here in the family in the next year. And they said, what's that? I said, squander. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that conversation? It was so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Squander. Are we, are we in danger of squandering? Yeah. What a terrible place to live. Yes, we are in danger of squandering. Yes, we are in danger of, of, uh, we don't live up to our potential. And if you live in the house of shoulds and wants, uh, you'll never have any joy. But what we recognize and what we lay hold of today is the fact that yes, sin dissipates and it is a powerful force. And it has its effect, but it doesn't win. Jesus wins. And we see evidence of that here in this text, that there is a group of people, though it's small, celebrating the goodness and the victory and the provision of their God and the rededication, the dedication of this temple and the reestablishment of regular and normal community life there as as they worship uh, together, right? So this is an important thing for all of us because we, every one of us, could could be stuck uh, on looking to our past, either in regret or or some kind of uh, idol worshiping nostalgia. And and the fact is, the work of God uh, goes on in and for the kingdom of God right here, right now. And he is the one who gets the last word in this. And that, that's our hope, really. That is, that is the thing that we, that we hang our faith on. And that is the thing ultimately, right, that we experience that gives us a sense of joy, not in our great accomplishments, not in the great things that we achieve, but in the fact that our God continues to work with us, has tied himself to us, and in Jesus Christ gets the final word. Now, uh, next slide. One of the, one of the things that uh, that might uh, uh, jump out at you in this text is that they say that they celebrated this joy because the king of Assyria, uh, that God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. And you're like, who is the king of Assyria? I thought we talked about the Persians and we talked about the Babylonians. Well, who who's the king of Assyria? Well, some people look at this and they think, well, that was a mistake that, that, that they meant to sing the king of Persia, but they, they wrote the king of Assyria. The problem with that is the very earliest uh, manuscript of this text has the king of Assyria in it. And so I think, I don't think it is a, it, it's a mistake. I think actually what the, they're saying is, you know, the, the king of Assyria was kind of the first major uh, uh, enemy that came against the people of God as a result of their uh, rebellion. And I think Ezra is simply saying here, this king of Assyria, he stands for all those who oppressed the people of God, all those that God used to uh, uh, deal with us in our rebellion. And God in his grace and mercy has not only brought a remnant back, not only is he getting the final 
final word in the establishment of our community here. But he's even taken this representative of all of our enemies. And he's turned their hearts towards us. Because remember, they're celebrating here not just their great generosity, but the fact that that the, the nations literally gave the money and the resources to get this temple built. A couple of other things uh, to keep in mind. One is, um, as we read this and we read about uh, the Passover and we read about the the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I, there's something important uh, for us to remember about this, and it's this. Um, the work of God uh, in delivering us and saving us is something worth celebrating. E- even eating something for over drinking something gathering with the people of God having a party do you know that now we're in the season of Lent usually people in Lent think that this means I got to give something up right chocolate or wool or I don't know (laughs) wine or you know Hair products, I don't know. I don't know whatever whatever it is your particular thing you want to give up is. Uh, and our Protestant forebears, particularly our, our Puritan forebears, did did not like that very much. And they and they particularly, you know, they didn't like Christmas either. They didn't like Easter. Uh, they didn't like Palm Sunday. They didn't like any of those things. And the reason why they didn't like them is not because they were, you know, big party poopers or anything like that. They're like, hey, you get a party every week. Every week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, a feast day, Jesus rose from the dead. Have a stinking party, right? Uh, you know, you didn't wake up thinking that today. If you woke up, you're, you're just better that you lost that hour of sleep. Which, you know, let's, let's sing that song again for, from the love of my own comfort. Anyway, um, what, what? It was viewed as a feast day. It was viewed as an opportunity once a week for us to gather together to celebrate. In fact, there were some early church councils that forbade people from fasting on Sunday because they wanted the people, they wanted the people of God to experience fellowship and joy together. Because you see what we, what we recognize here is that, that, that Jesus gets the last word on sin and death by overcoming it. And because we see that, because we believe that, and because we live in a world that is still tinged with sin and death, the fact that we were built for, redeemed for, and moving towards that ultimate victory in Him is a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to have a party. It's a reason to enjoy the good things that God gives us in this creation and to enjoy them together. Something we, we probably, we probably don't, we don't do that nearly as much as we should. Um, and I think we miss out on some of the encouragement uh, and the kind of tangible reminders uh, that these feasts offered God's people. Because you see, we don't have a yearly Passover. We don't have a yearly feast of unleavened bread, right? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul writes that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. 
Jesus fulfilled all of these things for us by making full atonement, by offering his life as the spotless lamb of God for us. And so because of that, we have every reason to enjoy and to take to heart and to experience his, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his power, and his atoning work for us. So really, ultimately, what we experience here, there's a place in our lives for fasting, no doubt about it. But is there a place in your life for feasting because your God loves you? Even in your dissipated and diminished sin-affected self, he still moves towards you in grace. He still moves towards you in mercy. He still gets the last word. One of the things, one of the things that I think is so, so rich about this is, is that we, we live in light of the work that Christ has done. We live in light of that. And yet so much of our lives is spent as if Jesus never came, as if his sacrifice was never made, and as if his tomb still had dead men's bones in it. But the witness of the scriptures, the witness of of the gospel, and the witness of the church today is Jesus is alive. And that is the destiny of sinful people like us. Hear these words of institution of the Lord's Supper. The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, as, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's uh, use this prayer of confession that's uh, printed uh, in the bulletin. Lord, forgive us our sins against you and our neighbor. You are the great physician giving new life to all who come. But we cling to our familiar sickness. You are the bridegroom inviting us to feast on new wine, but we are slow to come to your table. You said you came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Forgive our pride and unbelief.
Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. When we uh, come to the table of the Lord, we are proclaiming uh, that we are uh, much dissipated and much diminished by sin. Uh, But in the end, uh, Jesus' full atoning sacrifice, his life for us, his death for us is our destiny. And so today, as you come and you take this bread and you take this cup, you're recognizing that. We have an opportunity to profess the things that are true about us, that left to our own devices, uh, that we, in and left to ourselves, will squander the creation and the redemption that Jesus bought us. But that is not ultimately our destiny. That because Jesus is for us, because he lived, died, and rose again, and because he gives us his spirit, and he gives us one another, and he brings us to this table, we have an opportunity to be nourished, to repent, to remind ourselves once again, oh yeah, that's what's really true. That's worth celebrating. That's where my joy is found, right there in this proclamation of the atoning death of Jesus Christ for me. We forget it. It slips off our souls and our hearts. And yet Jesus is still faithful, still faithful to produce not only a remnant of his people, but his life is never extinguished in the heart of the believer. And so he gives you this today to strengthen and encourage. If, if this is uh, your profession and your hope today that Jesus lived and died, that he rose again, that he made full atonement for your sins, even if you've struggled with that this week and at times felt overwhelmed by guilt and sadness and, and bitterness and fear, he invites you today to come to taste and see. If that's true of you, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere. Don't let your doubts, don't let your past, and don't let your regrets keep you from what Jesus has for you today. So as the elders and deacons come down front this morning, let me remind you that uh, the outer ring is wine, uh, the inner rings are grape juice, all the bread is bread uh, that is gluten-free.